1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbun, and I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia, where I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. And I'm here today speaking with Corey Cropper, who's a professor of French at Brigham Young University. And he's one of the two authors of a fantastic uh, new book, and one that had me laughing a lot, actually, in a, in a really good way, uh, called Vélocipedomania, A Cultural History of the Vélocipede in France. It's out with Bucknell University Press this year, so it's hot off the presses. Uh, and again, the two authors are uh, Corey Cropper, professor of French at Brigham Young University who we're speaking with today, and also Seth Witten, professor of French literature and fellow at Queens College, Oxford Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today, Corey. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And I I mentioned before we started interviewing, um, that I I love this book. It's not, I'm a French historian by training, but I do the new books in sports. It's not often I get to um, read new books uh, in French history, uh, in French studies, as as well as reading something in sports history. And this book was just a real pleasure for me. Um, So thank you for for writing it. And I, I was wondering, uh, we were talking a little bit before and I said oh well I always ask first um yeah you know, how did you develop this project and and Corey said maybe ask me first how I how I became a cyclist so Corey why don't you why don't you start us off how did you get into cycling
0: well I uh, think thanks for having me on first of all Keith and I I uh this has been a really fun project for both Seth and for me I think because we both do bike and it's A passion outside of the academy for us, and uh, I, uh, uh, my story. I grew up in in uh, Western Idaho, and in the late '70s, there was the uh, oil crisis, and it meant that gas was rationed, and um, it meant that we all had bikes. And if I wanted to go to get to school, to get to church, to go fishing, it was Idaho. Uh, I had to ride. And so this is where I took up biking as a purely kind of utilitarian thing. But I, my, the, the story I do want to tell is I got into racing with other nine and 10 year olds in my hometown. We would race around our elementary school. It was on a block and I was, uh, set out on a race one afternoon after school. And I, I think I would have won this one, Keith. I was way, way ahead, (laughs) Hit, hit some gravel in the in a corner and went down and uh, broke my front teeth out. And I remember going back later. I went home and my father wanted to take me to the dentist, but he wanted to go look to see if he could find the teeth. And it was all this white gravel. <laughs> so there was no way. So I still have uh, uh, crowns on my front teeth from a bite crash I had when I started to bite back during the oil crisis in the late 70s. So so that's, that's my story. I, I kept. I, I biked again. Uh, I saw the Tour de France for the first time in Toulouse as a 16-year-old exchange student. And I biked in France when I was an LDS missionary in the late 80s, early 90s, rode all around, crashed, did the whole thing. And then I kind of got away from it until uh, here in Provo, Utah, where Brigham Young University is located, um, a colleague of mine introduced me to it. I reintroduced me to it and and it just really took. Uh, and so I I bike as much as I can. I tell new faculty here at BYU, I do training for them occasionally. And I always say, if you aren't biking, you need to start so you can get out of town, get into the mountains and just refresh your soul and your mind and and come back and be a better teacher and scholar because of it. So so that's my, my, uh, my bicycle
1: history. It's, um, I'm mean, not to go too far afield from the book right away, but uh, I, I hear some of the same tensions in the book in your description of biking. It's both pleasure and at the same time kind of practical and utilitarian and we yeah. uh, are, <laughs> and it, I, I'm always, I, I mean, cause I, I do sports history. I talk to a lot of, of, um, you know, fellow scholars who are who are into into sport, and so many of them are bikers, and I, I do wonder if there's something kind of linking the neoliberal <laughs> yeah. academia and in cycling. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, right. Well, it's uh, it's certainly possible, but it's I think it's uh, you know as a professor at least that my schedule is flexible enough that I can go biking when the weather's good, and then if I have to work later in the night or uh, get up earlier. It's I'm able to do that. So um, maybe f- the flexibility of our schedule lends us lends to biking as much as anything else.
1: And I, I mean, I, d- I do want to get to how you uh, hooked up with Seth and how you guys started the project. But I presume you're not a. Uh, I mean, the book's Velocipedomania. But it's not actually about the bicycles that we might all be familiar with, and I, I, I presume you're not riding a, a velocipede around Brooklyn. No. <laughs> no, I
0: wish I tried to convince I tried to convince my dean that he needed to buy, and my and the museum at the university that they needed to buy a velocipede, just so that we could uh, show it off in our museum. But uh, I I wasn't successful in that. So no, I
1: ride a a, a regular bicycle. Um for those listeners who don't know maybe you could tell us a little bit about what a what a velocipede is and how it's different from the bike that I think many of us know and love.
0: Yeah, uh, so the velocipede was popular in the late 1860s and was developed in France and there are a lot of different histories about the velocipede. A lot of people say that it uh, the origin if you if you read a history of the bicycle uh, you'll see usually part of a chapter we'll talk about the drazine, which was this, where in French they call it a drazienne. It was uh, basically a fence post with wheels on either side, and people would sit on this and run along and push off with their feet. And uh, this started around the time of the, uh, uh, right after the eruption of Mount Tambor in Indonesia. And the, the myth, or the legend at least, goes that there was uh, uh, this eruption caused crop shortages in Europe, the uh, a mini ice age, and that led people to even not be able to feed or have to eat their horses. And so uh, the Baron von Dreis created this way of getting around uh, that uh, replaced the horse for a time. But then in the in the 1860s, uh, in France, uh, a blacksmith came up with the idea of taking that general design, two wheels with a frame, and adding pedals to the front. So a well, Velocipede is iron-framed, wooden wheeled, almost like wagon wheels, uh, with this pedal uh, engineered right under the front wheel, so there's no gearing at all. There was a brake added to, to the back wheel act- activated by lever on the, um, on the handlebars, uh, but that's it. So, the English started calling this the bone shaker. And this is not to be confused either with the high wheeler or the Galbi as they call it in French that came a little later. This is the one with the, the high wheeler or the Galbi is that kind of comically large front wheel that was, uh, used for racing and, uh, was faster in the absence of gears than the, than the Velocipede, but the, the Velocipede's front and rear wheels were not identical in size but similar in size but it was pretty heavy top speeds of 15 kilometers 16 kilometers an hour or so and a rough ride
1: yeah <laughs> when i was reading when i was reading so many of the excerpts i was kind of thinking that myself like oh this would have been not as much fun to ride as they're describing but you, yeah you, you, for sure
0: so i wish i i wish i had written one though so i we had uh, arranged to meet with uh, people at the Smithsonian to look at some. We had a conference out there, and then COVID hit and
1: everything shut down. Hmm. So, so we never got that chance. That's a that's a total bummer. That would have been yeah. awesome, actually. I, I I did wonder how much. I mean, because you're a cyclist, and um, sounds like maybe Seth's also a cyclist. And so much. I'm I'm jumping ahead of myself in some ways, but so much of the the book it include, it includes these big translations of great primary source documents and um that you know at one point in time you're kind of reading how to ride a velocipede and I'm like I just need to take this and I can show now my daughter I'll just read this to her <laughs> and the rules are not that dissimilar. You
0: know yeah that's right. They the there are a couple of places in, in the book where there are instructions just on how to ride the velocipede, how to get started. And I don't, I don't know that they're actually great <laughs> instructions, but um, uh, yeah, the, so Seth, I will say too, parenthetically, Seth and I have biked together before. We, uh, we both have had an interest in cycling and have published on sports before, and we talked about doing a project together. Um, he's a big baseball fan, but we're both 19th century f- French specialists and not much baseball was uh, played in 19th century France. And uh, I'd done some work on cycling, and then at one uh, at a certain point, Seth had the idea to translate together the uh, manual Le Manuel du Vélocipède by Le Grand Jacques, the manual of the velocipede. So we started working on that, and just realized how much material was out there, and expanded it into into Velocipedomania, the book that we ended up publishing.
1: Yeah. So can you can you uh, again, like I for people who haven't read it, can you kind of walk us through a bit, like? Uh, what, what? How do you classify this book in terms of genre? Like, what were you, what were your goals? Um, I, I I could I could do it, but I think it's better if you if you do it.
0: Yeah, sure. We well, we started just thinking, hey, this this manual of the Velocipede is really important. Maybe one of the first texts that's kind of a comprehensive text written about uh, that that's a standalone text about bicycling or the pr- precursor to the bicycle anyway, the Velocipede. So we started working on that, um, and then we realized we we needed some more. So the, the after an introduction, the first thing we translated is actually a treatise on practical applications of the Velocipede and someone who's arguing for the utility of the Velocipede. Uh, and then um, we saw there were a number of theatrical um, productions that included Velocipedes, including the operetta that you mentioned. Uh, called Dagobert and his Velocipede. We translated that as well. Then then there's a the manual of the Velocipede that's really the heart of the book and an analysis of that. And then we included a few poems uh, that about the Velocipede, one that was written in Latin by a French high school student. but We translated that. So we wanted to make all this available to an English reading audience and then make it coherent through our introductions by explaining how the Velocipede fit and reflected 18 late 1860 French culture and how it also created, uh, ideas and a kind of culture that extends to the modern bicycle and the the way we perceive the bicycle, the way the French perceive bicycling today has roots back in this, uh, formative period in the late 1860s.
1: Yeah. I, 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 finished the book, um, completely convinced and charmed and I, 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 like I had mentioned before we started recording that Daigo Bear and his velocipede, um, when I, when I read that, I was just laughing out loud because it's just really funny <laughs> and I, I, I immediately wanted to see it staged. I was like, this is like a perfect, uh, a perfect little, a perfect little operetta that would be fun to see. Yeah.
0: And I, I, we have a big French club here at my university of students and
1: I'm still, I'm trying to convince them that they've got to put this on. I yeah. think they should. Well, and you you should tie that together with the purchase of a philosophy too. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, then I guess let's, I, 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 um, maybe do you want to, well, you had mentioned, I, I guess, before we started recording again, like, um, we could talk a little bit more about Kind of how you how you imagine using these sources and how they're useful for you in classrooms. Like I Mm think I'd like to talk more about that, but we could also jump into those chapters themselves. What do you want to record?
0: Yeah, maybe I could start uh, this. There's a quote that we we used as uh, to lead off the book, uh, an epigraph that I think is really telling. It's from a journalist writing in 1869 in in a. in a journal called Le Monde Illustré, or a newspaper called Le Monde Illustré. And he writes this, the time has come to speak of the Velocipede. The Velocipede is in our culture. It has entered our blood. It has become an institution. The Velocipede had to be born. It is now synonymous with our time and with our culture. And we, we took that as a uh, starting point in a way to, to, to start looking at the velocity and how it reflects the culture, how it was synonymous with the culture of France in the late 1860s. And we found threads of this in, you know, in all of the different kinds of, of texts that we, again, we wanted to make available. There's a huge, uh, not just academics, but cycling fans in general, people who like cycling history. And we wanted to make these texts available to them and then also contextualize it and show how it, Reflected French culture, how it had entered there, entered our it has entered our blood. Iriarte says
1: so. That that's kind of where we started. I I was definitely struck in some ways, uh, and I mentioned it earlier. uh, Between, throughout in your in your documents, between this tension between practicality and almost um, well, between practicality and pleasure, or practicality and transcendence, um, and in in some ways that strikes me as. Um, some of the tension inherent in that late second empire as well. <laughs> so I want you could talk us through a little bit of that.
0: Yeah. So the the first text that we translate is um, it, it's the, we call it the note on Monsieur Michaud's velocipede. Um, one of the contributions that we hope the book it's a small footnote maybe in the broader history of of, of bicycling, but is that we were able to triangulate who the author of this note was. It was published anonymously in 1868. Uh, but, but we found a number of articles in the press and taken together with that maybe other researchers hadn't seen and there and taken together with what the author writes in the note on the Velocipede, we are able to identify him as a certain baron named Baron de la Rue who worked at the ministry of the Navy in the 1860s and uh so it's what what seems to have to have happened is that he liked to ride the velocipede so much uh he was criticized for showing up at work in a sweat and it's almost like he tried to justify his bicycle or his velocipede riding by writing a treatise showing how useful the velocipede could be to the french state and um so he does talk about the pleasure of being out in, in nature on this, but uh, I thought maybe I'd read just a little passage that uh, was written in um, about him in Le Figaro, which is this big French uh, daily newspaper. This is a description of the Baron de la Rue uh, who, who wrote this note. The Uh, So the journalist, whose name is Coulange, writes, The Baron de la Rue is the inventor of the nautical velocipede. The day he invented it was the best day of his life. And it goes on to describe this article he wrote. Um, Each morning, de la Rue could be seen arriving at the ministry on his two-wheeled horse, sweating and panting, as if the fate of France were in the balance. Each evening, he went straight to the writing school of the famous Michaud the Gambetta of the Velocipede. In the office, he spoke only about Velocipedes, thought only about Velocipedes, breathed only Velocipedes. When he would blow his nose, he did it Velocipedically. It appears he hadn't changed and that he spends his time, he's been transferred at this point to uh, a port out in uh, in Brittany. He spends his time navigating the port on his famous nautical Velocipede. In his neighborhood, they all call him the subprefect prefect of Velocipedes. So I I, I think all of uh, those of us who are cyclists can relate to this idea of uh, merging our passion of cycling with our work. And he may be the first person to do that in writing. And I'm certainly his descendant in that respect.
1: I definitely um, appreci- appreciated this particular document because it kind of let and, and you see it you see it um, again in the manual of the Velocipede but it comes out very clearly here in this first document the kind of way in which um, someone's per- personal passion um, they find ways of kind of making it modern and useful <laughs> and maybe maybe it's not already but for him it was it was clearly about passion <laughs> yeah. Well
0: there you mentioned the paradox, but this is one of those paradoxes, right? You've got this it's uh, um, modern. It's this new technology that people are trying to get accepted. And then at the same time, there's this just sort of almost aesthetic pleasure of writing, of feeling the wind uh, uh, in your you know in your face, and of getting out of town, which this, the author of this note talks about too. Um, but, but he's, he does spend most of his time saying, here's how this could be useful for making France second Republic, second empire, France move forward and be, uh, be better. He talks about, for example, um, rescue operations, people will be able to get to where they need to go more quickly. More territory can be patrolled and protected from poachers by, uh, uh rangers. Uh, commuting will be faster, uh, information tele, telegraph telegraphs will be delivered more quickly mail could be delivered more efficiently um and that that is kind of the essence of what he's trying to accomplish here is is argued for the utility based on what he and I'm quoting him his extensive experience writing
1: yeah it was kind of taken by both that in this in the note and also in the manual de philosophie how much um, the the discussion of its efficiency is very scientific and technical. At one point in time, I'm like, man, I feel like I should have paid more attention in my physics classes. You know? Yeah, and, it, it's interesting. Kind of walking you through the the effort it takes to move the velocity this much, but at the grade of this, well, you can still yeah. walk on it and lean on it. And
0: yeah, and and it, it, that's uh, Le Grand Jacques in the Manuel de velocity goes into these really detailed calculations of how much energy you save by velo- riding a velocipede versus walking. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is it, it is almost, I mean, it, I would say it's pseudoscientific, right? It's They're trying to make the argument in favor of the velocipede, obviously, um, and why it should be adopted. So, yeah, but it's funny. And one thing that De La Rue points out, and this is a problem with no gear, he says, if you get above 4%, you just got to walk it. But, he adds, you're at least leaning against it. So you save energy there too.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That doesn't sound like a great argument to me, but
1: I don't it's... know. I, I, I walked around, I walked around a lot in the last six years with a, with a stroller and
0: <laughs> uh, or yeah, you I'm can only go be... leaning on a stroller. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. Can lean on it.
1: Yeah. That might just be my experience.
0: <laughs> so, so one of the things that we, uh, you know, we have this this translation of this note that is argues for the utility. Um, but I have a colleague, Marc Olivier, he's uh, in, in my department, the French department here at Brigham University. And he has written quite a bit on new technology and introducing new technology. And his argument is that the the usefulness only takes you so far. The argument for utility is limited. That if you really want to Get new technology established, you have to connect it to already established cultural forms, something that's already familiar to potential users. He 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 says that machines need to be socialized. And a great example of this is you might remember these or when the piece the, the personal computer originally came out, uh, the 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 idea they had to promote it was to use Charlie Chaplin. I mean an actor. Looking like Charlie Chaplin, obviously, but to say, "Hey, this is something." Even this actor who was in Modern Times, who was bewildered by new technology, he can figure it out. And there's a connection to something that the public is relatable to. And um, so we see that that's a kind of we shift in the book from this discussion of the utility to and even you know the the interaction to the manual on the velocipede talks about mixing the useful and the beautiful in beau. and and that's how we ended up that's one of the reasons we wanted to include this uh um the the operetta that you mentioned
1: yeah well I love the I loved the whole um chapter and then obviously the operetta after about velocipedes on stage and I was really kind of um you know thinking about thinking about you know, the way in which stage productions sometimes take on these these fantastical and almost untried or untested elements, and how they really become part of the show. So maybe you could tell tell us a little bit about what when do we first start seeing or reading about in this, in the circumstance Velocipede on stage, and how are they being used in these um, these stage productions in Paris? Uh, we
0: w- to back up just a little bit, an important. Development happens in 1864, and that's when uh, Napoleon III's government decides to deregulate theaters. There was a limit on the kinds of, uh, and the number of plays, and uh, it was controlled by the state in an effort to promote certain types of, of productions. After 1864, uh, it, it's completely freed up, liberalized, and uh, so you see new, new genres developing. And so there are like these acrobatic performances and that's where the Velocipede is originally used on stage. Michaud's son, Michaud who's this, uh, there, I should m- mention parenthetically that there's debate over whether or not Michaud should be given credit for inventing the Velocipede. Uh, he was, uh, a, a, a metal worker, um, and, a, a Smith, uh, and, but, What's clear is that in the minds of the public, he was like he's at least he's the mythological creator of it. You know whether he did it or it was the Olivier brothers or there are other p- names that were suggested. The public associates the velocipede with him. But close parentheses there. But his son was a promoter. His and they would do these exhibitions along the quay of the Sin River. They did a number of uh, acrobatic acts in in plays, in, uh, reviews on stage in Paris in 18, 1868, uh, 1869. And then you start to see the velocity take on another, a life of its own outside of that merely acrobatic performance, but, uh, become part of the, uh, the action in the plays part of the, part of the narrative.
1: So maybe, uh, we can talk then about the play that you all, um, translated and how you, how you, did the translation and and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Dagobert?
0: Yeah, so Dagobert and his philosophy. Dagobert is a French king uh, from the seventh century. Um, the advantage of Dagobert versus, say, Louis the Fourteenth or Francois I, some of these other kings, is that he was relatively uh, unknown, and there, there, there wasn't. Uh, um, a great deal of political resonance, so the French could kind of write onto this king what they what they wanted. Um, so it's the the operetta is set in the 17th, and what he's known for actually is from a, a song, a revolutionary era song that kind of made fun of the nobility, and he's known for putting his knickers on backwards. That's the lyrics to a song, and um, uh, so. The, that song appears in this operetta, and operetta means that it's partly sung, partly uh, uh, in regular dialogue, and and that that song, the Doug, uh, the the song about Doug O'Bear, is is a theme that runs through the music, and and I'll mention here too that if you're interested in listening to the music, uh, velocipede.byu.edu, and we've recorded. I had a student, uh, actually, uh, play this on the piano and record it, the, all the music from the operetta. I didn't sing anything to it. I'm, I'm sure you'll be disappointed to hear that Keith, but, but I did, but all the, <laughs> but all the music is there in addition to other songs that were inspired by the Velocipede and, uh, published in the same period, 1867, 68, 69. So if, if anybody wants to listen to that, but the, the song dago Dagobe" is a theme throughout, and uh, uh, so the the one of my favorite parts of doing this project was actually translating the songs, and I I, uh, I hope that the rhyme and the some of the spirit of that came through, because I tried to preserve the rhyme and the meter as much as possible as well when when uh, I worked on this part, and then of course Seth, with my colleague in Oxford, who worked on this with me, he. Corrected it, but I taught a class on the operetta, nineteenth-century French operetta, uh, a couple of years ago. Before, as we were working on this, and I, uh, I brought it to, I, so I had my students read it, and I gave them passages and asked, invited them to try to translate it. And this operetta is full of puns. Some of them are are just terrible puns, real groaners. Um, but uh, I, I'm one of them. If, maybe I can describe it just to give you a sense for the kind of challenges we had translating this. There's a question about the paternity of one of the main characters. And at the end of the play, it's revealed, I don't want to spoil it, but it is revealed who, who this character's father was. On one of the uh, wheels of the velocipede that is appears throughout the, the operetta, it's written, Mon fils a des cheveux. My son has hair. And because it's written on the wheel, the word for wheel in French is roue, and the word for red hair, red is roux. So mon des cheveux it's this pun between the word wheel and hair. So tr- translate that, right? I, I initially had something about my son is up a creek without a pedal, but that didn't really work. It's terrible. I know it's terrible, but I took it to my class, and one of my students had this brilliant idea. Let me read. I'm going to read the, the passage, if, the, if that's okay, just part of this. So this is from the last scene of the operetta. Dagobert stops or stops uh, this a character named Goldbrick, and says, wait, we have to be sure you're not playing me for a fool. Are you really my brother's son? And he, just, he says, go get my velocipede. If you're really my brother's son, you'll be able to tell me what's engraved on the left petal. Goldbrick. Of course, the engraving reads, "My son has wheelie red hair," but I'm thump And what does that mean? It means my son has really wet red hair. See for yourself. And Goldbrick takes off his hat and shows his hair off, wheelie. And then the the minister says, in legal terms, we call that a pun. And then Dagobert and his nephew embrace. He, now that he knows he's his nephew. So that was my student came up with that idea of. of Wheelie red hair. I thought it was better than my my uh, weak attempt, so we went with that.
1: I'm I'm, I'm going to have to give your student credit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he did a good job. I even I even
1: included him in a note. So if you, uh, yes, you. Yeah. I mean, if you're reading this, by the way, I, I I'm not joking, uh, listeners. When I said this is one of the most fun things I've read this year, the layer of punning and joking is very thick. It is almost I was so surprised in reading it because it's almost postmodern and its and its take. At some point in time you can't believe that this was written when it was written, you know. And like the, it was written in the eighteen sixties. I mean there's a that uh, in legal terms that's called a pun. That that's a running they have a run, that running gag. Go oh, in legal terms, let's call it. it. And then of course Dagobert consulting the encyclopedia to find out what he does. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, the the opera operas in 19th century french they were they were a lot of the jokes are built around anachronism certainly in this operetta that's the case and around uh sort of these parodies of more serious operas and opéra comique that that people would have known in the same way we know you know uh, netflix series and films today and so there's a lot of uh sort of meta humor going on in, in them it's a lot of fun
1: I was flipping back and forth to the notes, you know, just kind of continually while I'm reading this and I'm laughing, reading what just what I can get. And then i look at the note and I start laughing again. I'm like, oh, it's just a very clever, it's a very clever writing. And honestly, I, you know, the translation was amazing. I got, you did keep the meter you did keep the rhyme. I was impressed. I, I, I was, when I'm reading it, I was like, oh man, this would have been quite a, a difficult task. Yeah, it, it was a
0: labor of love, but we had a lot of fun doing it too. I mean, we just, it's a fun topic. And so we, you know, got into it and, and just played around a lot with it to
1: make it work. So, and you, you do have to get your student students to do it now. I mean, you know, it's yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> must be staged. <laughs> yeah, I know I do. We need to do that. I'll, I'll work on that. Okay. So. Your, your, your following chapter, though, and we should get to it, because as you've mentioned before, this is kind of the meat of your book, is, is this um, ma- manual of the velocipede. And so I guess, um, you know, I, we, we could approach it by first talking about the author. Or we could talk through, that you, you and Seth identify a series of themes. I, I don't know if you want to introduce.
0: Yeah, so the, the author is, uh, he goes by Le Grand Jacques, the big or the great Jacques, Uh, or James, and he uh, um, goes by a lot of different um, uh, pseudonyms, though, too. But the author is Richard Lesclide, who was the personal secretary to Victor Hugo. He wrote other novels and uh, short stories, uh, wrote for newspapers quite a bit, and he sometimes used the pseudonym Le Grand Jacques. He wrote plays as well. Um, But he was a, a a promoter of the velocipede from start to the end of his life, and he started a newspaper as well about the velocipede Veloci- called the Velocipède Illustré. It changed names several times, but that kept going off and on in spurts until until he died. And and I I should mention too that he par- he teamed up with uh, an illustrator named Émile Benassi, who uh, uh, was well known for. Illustrations and all kinds of publications and newspapers at the time. And he, uh, you know, he had to come up with a way to depict the velocipede to communicate movement. And so we go, we talk uh, at, to some extent about the, the, the engravings that are in the, the manual, and we reproduce them all in the, in the book. Uh, so we hope that's also a, a, a useful resource and something that's just fun.
1: through
0: adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Su- super
1: so. fun. And also, I was surprised. I mean, it's very rare that you can point to these examples of, I mean, Venice he's like a, you know, re- relatively, um, you know, almost minor character in some ways, but he creates this whole visual lexicon, which if you read or look at comics today is still the visual lexicon. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that's right. Bro, I, and of other things. <laughs> as yeah. Yeah. As um,
0: how do you, how do you draw movement and how do you, um, yeah, how do you do pick? And I think maybe his biggest contribution is the way he depicts women's fashion and, and particularly, you know, there, he shows men writing as well, but the, the fashion of the, uh, the female velocity is, is to me, one of the most interesting aspects of this whole thing. because. You know that there was a uh, uh, not a law, but a, de- a sort of police decree that in Paris women were not allowed to wear pants. That was went into went into effect in 1800, and actually wasn't revoked until like 2013 or 2016. I can't. I've got it written down here. I want to get the right date. 2013. That's when that was finally taken off the books. Of course, it was not uh, enforced terribly well, but you know you hear these stories of women 19th century women like uh, colette or early 20th century or george sand for them to wear pants they had to go get a note from the prefect uh, from the police in order to be authorized but it seems that women could that they they flaunted those rules starting in the late 1860s when they when they started writing velocipedes and in 1892, it was that rule was amended to allow women riding bicycles to uh, dress to not wear a dress, but to wear uh, wear pants. And you see the fashion in in these engravings and the contrast between the women on the velocipede and the women who were on the side of the road watching almost longingly, you know, seeing these women in free flowing and clothes they can move in, ride right past.
1: I mean, gender is an enormous. Um an enormous theme of this manual and mm-hmm. honestly i mean I, I have to admit i was a bit surprised that even at such an early date we see i mean on, not equal attention but almost equal attention and sometimes more attention uh paid to women as to, as to men so i wonder if you can pull apart some of the the ways in which gender is being um, commented on or what, illuminated by the this manual.
0: Yeah uh, for, first of all, uh, this 1869 is when a lot of the feminist movements in France really get off the ground. Uh, Maria André Andrea Neo, they publish uh, uh, a text called No droit des femmes, the journal um, And so you see the first feminist movements, proto-feminist movements, right? But the first idea of women organizing and pushing for rights for equal, for education for girls, uh, that's happening right as the Manual of the Velocipede is being written and published. And so uh the and the Velocipede seems presented there there are of course plenty of sexist passages in in here, right? There when you look there's a chapter in the Manual of the Velocipede on fashion and for men, it's a three sentences long, something like that. For women, it's two pages long. And here's how they should dress and must dress, and so on. Uh, so that that kind of continues today, right? Men telling women how they should dress, uh, but women are given mobility through the velocipede. Um, people have argued that the the bicycle, later in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century gives women a measure of freedom that they had never enjoyed before. Um, and I've even read that uh, the Velocipede and later the bicycle meant that gene pools changed quite a bit because suddenly women and men could ride from their small village to the neighboring village to, uh, to meet partners. And that actually you know, comes up in the operetta and it comes up over and over again in the manual of the Velocipede that, that the Velocipede is tied in with romantic relationships. But to go back to the, the point, women are given mobility. There's this idea that women of different social classes can now have access to to, to uh, freedom of movement. They don't no, no need to rely on men or an expensive horse and carriage to get around. Um, and uh, women, one of the illustrations that we include in here is by the illustrator, Albert Hubida, maybe one of the most important of the second half of the 19th century and he wrote a uh, he, he uh, illustrated caricature called the um, uh, let me it's the saison des enlèvements, the season of abductions and it there's this reference to the to David's painting the Abduction of the Sabine women. Uh, but here you have men riding velocipedes carrying women off, but also men, women riding velocipedes carrying men off. So there's a the velocipede seems to level the playing field a little bit, at least in theory, and uh, so that that was a lot of fun
1: to discover and to to analyze in our in our book. One of the main themes that you all identify, and um, I think a, a fairly original contribution as well, is the theme of the carnivalesque. And I didn't, you know, the modernity or anti-modernity and some of the gender politics uh, things that you see in some other places, but this idea of the bicycle as being part of the carnival was really um, enlightening for me. really, um, I, I was quite taken with it as an idea. So I, I wonder if you can talk a bit about that.
0: Yeah, I, I, it does seem that, um, it, and not even seem, it's clearly a reference for early promoters of the Velocipede. There's a, an advertisement by uh, the Michaud company uh, from 1869, where they they depict a velocipede and tie it in with uh, with these carnival figures and the the parades that were around carnival. So there's there is this idea in social class, right, that the the, the bottom and the top are flattened, or that the the uh, and the velocipede came to be associated with what in France and. This is something I wasn't super aware of until some research I've just done in the last few years, but uh, that there was a, a mid Lent sort of a, a second carnival event halfway through Lent. It's like the French are saying we can't make it all the way through, so and they called that that festival the festival of the washerwomen, La Fête des Blanchisseuses, and it looks like it was bigger for a number of years, even bigger than carnival, uh, uh, and. And the Velocipede and music and women being uh, put in a position of queen and, and uh, the women who were from like the lowest class of working women in, in Paris were, uh, you know, for a day made into uh, something way above their station. So And the bicycle fits into that. The, the, um, the menu of the Velocipede is published by a newspaper newspaper uh, that also covered mid-Lent extensively. So those were all tied together uh, around this time. And uh, maybe I'd just read a little, a short paragraph about uh, Carnival. Uh, so in, in Carnival, you know, the there's this sort of freedom from the conventional order. Uh, the stories are filled, uh, we see this here, the stories are filled with double entendres, linguistic equivalent of the carnivalesque that brings high and low language together in a single word or phrase. Uh, continuing by describing and depicting the Velasquez and mesh with carnival, Lesquide and Michaud succeeded in weaving it into the fabric of a popular festival and grafting it into a centuries-old tradition associated with freedom, fun, and fancy. And on the, on that topic of, of paradoxes, you you mentioned that and and. Uh, what, what I find really fascinating about the Velocipede is, is that, um, especially in the manual of the Velocipede, they try to attach the Velocipede to, they say it's really modern, but it's also really old. And in the manual, they talk about the Velocipede being nothing more than a reinvention of Fortuna, in mythological terms, the fortune and her wheel. They tie it to Pompeii. Uh, they say the first velocipede was a child riding a stick. Uh, and they even, uh, or the, the author, uh, Le Grand Jacques in the Manuel du Vélocipede, he goes so far, uh, if I could read this passage from it, quite seriously, the first child riding a stick, this is a chapter on the history of the velocipede. The first child riding a stick like a horse is a primitive inventor of the velocipede. Everything else is just improvement after improvement. Mm-hmm it is even possible that the child in question was Abel and his brother Cain, which places the origin of this machine at the creation of the world.
1: (laughs) So uh, I I just find that... I love that. Yeah. 100% convinced right away. I was like, of course. (laughs) Sometimes you read something, it just has like the... It just has the... It's just self-evidently the case. That's right, yeah. (laughs) So anyway, it's
0: so kind of outrageous but it it makes sense in this carnivalesque world of the uh, of the Velocipede and the various paradoxes here so you have this modern ultimate, uh, you know this symbol of modernity tied back to Adam and Eve uh, it's a symbol of of society's elite it's still expensive but it offers hope of upward mobility there's a a a, a poor woman who is selling flowers who gets the bug and decides she's going to have a vocation and get into racing cycling, racing Velocipedes. This is a a woman, right? So there's this hope of upward mobility. Uh, There's there's objectification of women that happens, but also liberation that happens thanks to the Velocipede. There's this, you know, it's an industrially produced machine that offers freedom from the industrial world. Uh, And these contradictions, I think you mentioned this already, but it they do mirror the contradictions of 1860s France in many ways.
1: Yeah, no, I, I we could keep talking about some of this even even more, but I don't want to. I don't want to take up all of your time because I like I'm now you're mentioning this. I'm thinking of the small chapter in the manual where the men are watching the women uh, race and they're talking about the different kinds of races and you have almost different stock characters of, of men and different stock characters of women they're watching um race and i was taken by the idea of slow racing i wanted to learn more about slow racing right away yeah i i uh, i have a confession to make when i was a,
0: a young i was uh, my parents put me in boy scouts and i had to get the cycling merit badge and to do that we had to we had a slow race and i was again, just like my other race I described earlier, I was going to win this thing. I was way behind, and then I crashed my bike, so I was out. I was going too slowly, then I, I fell over. So, once again, near greatness, it's a story of my life.
1: <laughs> so, but I mean, this this is a second empire story in some ways, but we know that the, you know, perhaps I maybe you would argue that the veloc- Velocipede is the is the progenitor of the bicycle. So, what happens to velocipedes? Where, where do they go? Where does the mania end? Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what happens at kind of at the end of the story. Yeah, there there are a lot of velocipede clubs.
0: Uh, the Second Empire started allowing associations, and you could make the argument that the velocipede paves the way in some respects for the Third Republic. That the uh, the social Practices that the velocipede entails, the kind of e- promise of equality, um, helps train people for Republican practice. But, uh, you know, 1870 happens, and um, uh, Kobayashi, who wrote a history of the velocipede and the bicycle, talks about the fact that the companies making the velocipede were already in financial trouble by the middle of 1870. But then, at the end of eighteen seventy, there's the Franco-Prussian War, uh, eighteen early eighteen seventy one, the Paris Commune, and uh, in the conclusion of the book, we talk about uh, various reactions to the velocipede during that. Uh, people wrote about it, and the velocipede, because it was associated with freedom and with the carnival, seemed to clash with the seriousness of the Franco-Prussian War and the siege. So the, the Velocipede kind of fall, it does fall out of favor. And where in England, you have the high wheeler that develops, it's not as big uh, in France. And it it it, it has to, you, we have to wait until really the late 1880s until the bicycle kind of resurrects that same kind of uh, energy and enthusiasm in France. And then, of course, that will lead right into the Tour de France and to... A huge bicycle culture in France in the first half of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was totally uh, when I'm reading it my when I was reading it myself. I was trying to decide for myself. um, You know, how much is this a precursor? How much is this not the precursor? But I was taken by the idea. I I look so much at associational life, but in the 30s and 1930s and 40s, and um, the the promise and premise is of associational life. In under occupation and how important the bicycle becomes in occupied france <laughs> and the idea that during the franco-prussian war and the siege it becomes you know, that 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 transcendent nature is the thing that people hold on to you know like oh we can't like bicycling during the siege is unbelievable because what how could you be having fun But during the you know the occupation of france bicycling becomes um you know an essential part of everyday life you, you, there's no gasoline so you have to bicycle to you are know, up to the side to get food or um there's still fun with it but people aren't riding. like oh i can't believe people are riding their bicycles for fun people are like oh, we need more bicycles right
0: and and you see this tension you know between the note on the velocity this kind of utilitarian thing and then the the freedom and fun of it uh, way back at, you know in the 1860s 1868 1869 um, and you know in and there is that same tension I think you have people that say well I, I bike because it's utilitarian it gets me to work and then others that ride like I, I do I love getting in the mountains I don't race i uh, but I you know I still ride for pleasure and for exercise and for for s- you know socializing with other cyclists um but yeah that that and that certainly that kind of tension runs through to today
1: well it's a it's a bit of an auspicious day for actually to do the interview and i didn't really think about it too much but um i just got the we have a union at our university and we just got a note today that our union wants to fight for um i forget the term they were using in the in the in the in the email but uh basically facilities for after transit like if you ride your bicycle to work do you have anywhere to clean up you know or you do you have to teach you know in your in your sweaty in a joggers and things like that so uh the, you, that's one of the things um they'd like to fight fight for in the near future so that you can bicycle or or scooter was also in the I think you've gone out um on your way to work yeah
0: yeah. And I've seen, uh, I was at the University of Arizona recently and uh, uh, I was with a colleague and she reached out and grabbed me at one point And I stopped and a cyclist went right in front of us and she said, they have right of way on campus. And they have uh, they have uh, they also have um, a valley service for bicycles in some universities. We We have a ways to go here at my university to get there, but
1: I you know it it strikes me that, that a university is the perfect place for some of this, especially if you have lots of students on campus. but uh, look, this has really been a, a pleasure, Corey. I, I, I'll ask you the question I ask everybody at the end, um, which is you know what what do we have to look forward to next? What's what's kind of next on the horizon? And it's, if it's not a sports history thing that's okay too because a lot of people have more than one more than one interest or field. <laughs>
0: Actually, I, I am working on a, uh, a colleague of mine named Maxence Lecomte. He's at Trinity University in Texas. Sure, he's putting am, together, yeah. you know, Maxence. He's putting together a book on sport in Paris. He's trying to get it out before the Olympics next summer.
1: Yeah, the I'm, so, I'm, I'm the slowest
0: person in that race. <laughs> oh, are you? Okay, good. I'm glad to hear you're in the race, though. That's good to hear.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very so, slow. <laughs> I, well, i will sorry, Max. But, <laughs>
0: I've been working with uh, my colleague Pratima Prasad at the University of Massachusetts in Boston on a, a chapter about Eugène Chapu, who was Guadalupean-born, uh, and he wrote a book called Le Sport à Paris, Sport in Paris. And that same year, 1854, started the first newspaper in France devoted to sports. And our argument, though, is that when he when he says sport, he doesn't mean the same thing that we mean when we say sport. So for him, it's about integrating and belonging to the, the Jean Dumont, that's the subtitle of his newspaper, to sort of the Parisian high life. Uh, so the newspaper covers hunting and horse racing, but also theater, cafes, masked balls, chess. Uh, yeah. And so so that that's the argument. That's And that's been kind of fun to dig into. Yeah, he's, he's talking about baseball, you know. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like like he borrows that and then kind of re, re tries to define it in a way that makes sense for people trying to integrate this this upper class world in in Paris.
1: Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm already looking forward to reading it. That sounds fantastic.
0: Well, and I'm looking forward to reading what
1: you uh, even even if it's a little slow. I'm I'm happy that you're on that project okay. that's that's yeah, a good idea. You know, i'm just writing about us Aust- australians and uh new zealand there's antipodean sportsmen who come over to paris and the role they play in in shaping french thinking about different kinds of rugby um, oh. but it's just a, a sideline for me in some ways because during the covid era it was hard to get over to france to do any research so I had to yeah. look at local more local sources.
0: Well, maybe that will help me get over my depression of France losing in the World Cup, in oh, yeah. the Rugby World Cup. Uh, yeah, but, I, but I, we, the, don't wanna, we don't want to. We don't want to start down
1: that road, Keith. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the
1: Australians also didn't do so well.
0: I know. Yeah, unfortunately.
1: Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Corey. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening. I've been speaking with Corey Cropper. He's a professor. Of french at brigham young university and he's one of the two authors of a book that's just fantastic and and frankly from my point of view um useful for uh, scholars doing their own research but also would be really uh, great to bring into classrooms uh, the book is velocipedomania a cultural history of the velocipede in france it's out this year with bucknell university press so I should mention the other author, of course, Seth uh, Whedon, who couldn't join us today. He's a professor of French literature and a fellow at Queens College, Oxford. But thank you, Corey, for very much for joining us, and it's really been a pleasure to have you uh, here today. Keith, it was a blast. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you all for listening.